As we come to our pastoral prayer this morning, you'll notice that uh, we are praying for persecuted Christians, persecuted Christians. And as we have been studying in the book of Revelation, we'll get to that in a minute, uh, this is just a prayer of reminder that uh, we have brothers and sisters, don't we, around the world who daily face the threat of losing everything for the sake of the gospel. Uh, The stats hold true that in the last 100 to 150 years, probably close to 100 million Christians have lost their lives at the hand of those who want nothing to do with Jesus. More so in the last 150 years, probably from the death of Jesus until those 150 years uh, combined. It's a crazy time to be a Christian in most places. At most recent count, by Voice of the Martyrs, which is a nonprofit that keeps track of a lot of this data, uh, they have found that over 30 countries right now around the world, it is illegal or by, uh, by way of death for being a Christian. You can think of some of those countries, North Korea, Iran, um, and so on and so forth. But they're usually along what we call the 1040 window. I don't have a map, but usually along the window from uh, the, the equator and just a little above and below is where most of this persecution happens. And before we pray, I just want to remind us all about what it is, because in Revelation today, the fifth seal will be going over this. And it tells us, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of things against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted you, the prophets before you, so they will persecute you. And that from that book of Hebrews, if you've been with us, we, we, we kind of went over that last year, I think, just a little bit, right? Book of Hebrews says at the end of the chapter, it says, and, and who can tell about those who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the sword, and remained mighty and strong. Women received back their dead, but some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. And others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword, and they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts, mourning, and in all dens and on the earth. And these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from they should be not made perfect. Point of the matter is, as we pray this morning, I want us to pray for Christians around the world. The persecution here may not look like the persecution wherever else around the world, but I guarantee you, if you make a stand for Jesus, there will be a time and a place. And as we look at the fifth seal, and I'll introduce our speaker in just a moment and all that goes with that, but would you pray with me? I want to take a moment to pray for the persecuted church. So let's bow our heads together, shall we, as we do. Sovereign God, we worship you this morning. We thank you that as Psalm 115 said, you are in the heavens and you do whatever you please. And we acknowledge that you know all of those who suffer, Lord, in your name. So, Father, this morning we remember those who are in prison for their faith, and we ask that they would join with the Apostle Paul to see that though they remain captive, their chains have not done anything but furthered the gospel, not frustrated it. Father, may you embolden them. May you inspire them to, uh, to, and other fellow believers to speak fearlessly and courageously the word of God and the gospel of Christ. Father, you give us all comfort. For those who are tortured both in body and mind, may you give them grace to endure. Father, may you give them, uh, them to see the suffering that they are walking, as it were, in the footsteps of their Savior. Lord, you're also a merciful God. And so, Lord, we, pray, we know that uh, you've 
paid the ultimate price through your son. And for those who are martyred or killed for their faith, who love you, may you bless their families who are left here on this earth. And may they truly know Christ and the power of the resurrections and the, the, the fellowship of his sufferings. So, Father, today, for those who are widowed and orphaned, may they know the comfort that comes from your promised presence, even when they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Father, may you strengthen by your spirit and enable them to rejoice with the psalmist to proclaim the Lord and not abandon them to death. Father, teach us what it means, as we've seen in Revelation, to overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. And we pray we would not shrink back to love those to, who are given over to death or to love you even when we are threatened the same. And Father, on a personal note here at our local church, we pray for, uh, uh, we rejoice that one brother in our church has been released after several weeks in the hospital, but we also pray for another brother of ours who's in the hospital today. Father, you know all those details, but may you bring physical healing, may you bring clarity and wisdom and strength to families, but more so encouragement in the gospel of Christ. Father, we pray these things in the preaching of your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I am taking a seat, and we do this about every four to six weeks to let someone else preach. And as a way of reminder, that's good for you because you get to hear a different voice. It happens to be my old pastor's voice, or young pastor's voice, excuse me, Willie, over here, whatever, but he's here. And Willie's going to be preaching through the fifth seal today. But a couple housekeeping things before I call my brother up and introduce him a little bit more for you. The Revelation final six-chapter study guide is out there. I think we have enough copies. If you have feedback on this, let us know. Uh, Nelson had some good commentary. He said, it's not really a study guide. It's more like a sermon. I said, yeah, probably so. So if you have any pointers for this, let us know if it's helpful to you. The last thing before Willie comes is last week I did not mention this. We have a statement out there that we subscribe to called the Nashville Statement about what the Bible says about gender, equality, sexuality, all that stuff we talked about last week. This is available online. We also put some printed copies out there. We emailed it and Facebooked it as well, but there you go if you have it. This is our, uh, I call him Brother Willie. That's how I knew him. He's got a doctor. He's got all the fancy things, but really at the base of it, he loves Jesus, and he's going to bring you God's word. And that's all I need to say this morning. So, brother, thank you. In a week where behind the scenes, here, there, and everywhere, I needed that break to focus on other things. Why don't you come preach the word of God to us? Thank you. Good morning. Uh, I want to thank Darren and the ministerial staff for allowing me the privilege to uh, preach this morning, share the message this morning. I haven't preached for a while, so I have about 10 sermons uh, that I'm going to share with you this morning, but you'll be out before the start of the Chiefs game. <laughs> yeah, that's next Sunday. I know that. That's why I mean you'll be out before the start of the Chiefs game. I just want to say that last week, uh, Niren preached from Genesis and address some of the hot topics of our culture today. If you did not hear that message, I would urge you to go online, listen to that message. I think there are some good biblical principles there for you as you seek to glorify God in a culture that is eating away at that. It is trying to distract you, and I think that there are some very good things that you can have there. And you can fight the cultural applause for the unbiblical things that take place. And this week, we are returning to the book of Revelation, chapter 6. Darren took you through the first four seals a couple of weeks ago, and I get the privilege of coming to the fifth seal. I think the sixth chapter of Revelation 
if nothing else, is a chapter that should give you great comfort and assurance that God reigns. And I put it up there on the screen. It's kind of a uh, Christian bookish kind of plaque that you see out there. We have one at our house. We just like it. And this is not the Tower View uh, sign, so I, I want to make sure of that out there in case somebody gets the wrong Sunday school time because we need to be on time for Sunday. No, that's, that's another topic, all right, in that one. But I, I've often liked it. The forecast for today is that God reigns and the sun shines. And if you're going to see that, I think you're going to see that as we go through this part of Revelation 6. You know, one of the things about the book of Revelation that makes it very uh, challenging is that we're confronted with images and we're confronted with a language and descriptions that are not part of our normal everyday life. You know, it's when you read Christ's parables, the parables are refreshing because we identify with much of that. Seed being cast upon the soil, a lost coin, a son who uh, abuses his father's inheritance. Or elsewhere in Scripture, like in the Old Testament, we like the image of sheep lying down in a green pasture, or a tree that is planted by living water, or an eagle that soars. What beautiful pictures. Even the ugly battle scenes of the Old Testament are easy for us to kind of conjure up in our mind. But when we come to the book of Revelation, we find out that we are reading things that sound vaguely familiar, but we somehow can't quite get the image within our mind. It's a slightly different language. And because of that, many people come to the book of Revelation treating it like a puzzle, like some kind of mysterious thing that I've got to fit this here and I've got to fit this here. And instead of eyes being opened up, to the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the title of the book. Not the revelation of the end times. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Instead of eyes being opened up to that, eyes become squinted. And they want to figure out, who's the rider on the horses? What are those plagues? What about the dragons? What's the sign of the beast? Who really is 666? Six. And most of you know that in Revelation, as in parts of Daniel, segments of Joel, segments of Zechariah, we have what is called apocalyptic language. That's a good word that you can throw out every once in a while, apocalyptic language. Amy, if you'd put up the next slide, Alistair Begg, who... Uh, He's one of my favorites to listen to, not only because he's biblically grounded, but I love his Scottish accent. <laughs> Alistair Begg says, apocalyptic writing is literary shock treatment. Used to express that falls outside the natural boundaries of our language. I like that description. And in Revelation, there are parts that are harsh and an exposure to evil that exists, that is not comfortable. Otherworldly images, yet equally pictures of glory and splendor that go beyond this little finite mind to understand. And you're somewhat stunned. 
and may have the feeling like when you sit in an optometrist chair and they're going click, 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 which is clear, image one or image two. I just saw the optometrist two weeks ago, and after a while, you just kind of give up, you know? They said, read the chart at the back, and that said something like, time to eat lunch, you know, and they said, no, you missed them all, you missed them all, and you're going like that. I confess that through the years, I think I've done the gamut of reading what people have to say about apocalyptic writing. So I'm going to tell you what my theology is of eschatology, which is that formal proper word for the study of the end times and the return of Christ. It's what I've often told many people. I can ultimately wrap it up in one sentence. The better I understand the first coming of Christ, the better I understand the second. The better I understand the first coming of Christ, the better I understand the second. And many people try to understand the second without really ever digging in, sinking in to the first. His life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection, his call to discipleship, his equipping of us, my secure citizenship in his kingdom, his grip on my life, the call to trust him, the simple words, follow me. What I learn is that my confidence and security does not come in my understanding of how to figure out the puzzle, but in the assurance of the one who's behind the puzzle. Amy, if you put up the next slide, one wise man said, and I have no idea who he was, Maybe it was a wise woman that said this. It said that really the Bible is not intended for us to examine the architecture, but to know the architect. I will not attempt to answer your questions on the fifth seal of Revelation chapter 6. In fact, I may say some things that you might say, wait, I, I don't quite want to go there. But what I want you to see is Christ. And that's what I want you to see this morning. Having said that, the title of my message really comes from our Baptist faith and message. Amy, the next slide. Baptist faith and message starts off this way. God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. It goes on to say, according to his promise... Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised, and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. I believe in many ways that simple statement of the Baptist faith and message is what really comforts me. God, in his own time and in his own way, will bring the world to its appropriate end. This morning, if you have your Bibles open, Revelation chapter 6. I am going to go back to the beginning and read up to verse 11 so that we get the fifth seal in its proper perspective. 
If you're able this morning to stand in honor of God's word, would you stand as I read the first 11 verses? I'm reading from New American Standard. Don't we have you hopping all over the various translations here? It's good. It's good. Then I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God, because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. This morning, the fifth seal. Pray with me, please. Father, I thank you for the privilege this morning. Father, would you equip me to be up to the privilege of sharing God's word? Thank you, Father, for those in attendance that you have given them the privilege of hearing God's word. May they be up to the privilege of hearing your word. And Father, may we seek today that God be glorified because you do reign and you reign forever. I pray this, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Amy, if you could put up the next slide. This is kind of where we have been. We've had four horsemen that have appeared on the scene. We have had them pronounced and come. Specifically, at least three of these horsemen are not favorable. Uh, you, you, you look at this and you see an earthly turmoil, spiritual conflict, in the sending forth of the gospel, the denial of peace, false measures and injustice, deception, deceit, ultimately death and Hades. I agree with Darren that, that, that I don't see this as a specific period, but I see this as the ongoing situation of the world that we live in. I think that's what you said last week or two weeks ago, and I, I agree with that. This is the turmoil that we are in. 
It is described in a span of approximately 250 words, but there are 250 very disturbing words. No matter how you view the events at the beginning of Revelation chapter 6, you cannot escape its devastation. Comfort is lacking. There's a doom and gloom aspect to it. Desperation, despair, defeat, three Ds. Hopelessness, agony, begging the question as to whether or not there is light at the end of the tunnel. But the focus abruptly changes when you come to the fifth seal. It is this change that I think brings the chapter into focus. It is this change that reminds us that God does reign and the sun does shine. I realize that the overall title of this series is God Wins. I have no problem with that. But I think for me as I read these verses, I would say God reigns. He wins because he is a reigning God. And he affirms it very clearly here. And I think you need to know that today in whatever you face. Or might I say, whatever you're about to face. In this particular place, we are going to be drawn to a place under the altar and a description that I think alerts us. We're going to be hearing about a very unique group of people or a unique group of souls, I might say. And they are ones that know he reigns. They're not saying, do you reign? If you reign, they know he reigns. They're not simply hoping, but they want to see the fulfillment of this. They don't cry out to just anyone or to someone they don't know. They're not there under the altar saying, would somebody help us? But they cry out to the Lord. And they are very much aware of what's happening. This morning, I want to look at this passage not just in an informational sense or in an analytical sense or even in a chronological sense trying to fit it into a timeline. I want to look at it the way I believe we should look at every portion of Scripture. What it tells me about God, what it tells me about me, and how I am to respond to the vast difference that exists between those two. We're going to do this like you eat an elephant. You know how you eat an elephant, don't you? One bite at a time. We are going to go one bite at a time. Next slide, Amy. So the first thing that I want you to see are these unique participants in a very unique location. John is given a vision of souls underneath the altar. Now, when I read through the text, you may have noticed something has changed between the first four seals and the fifth seal. The first four seals start with the word, come. One of the living beasts says, come, come. And when you read through that, you might think that they're telling John to come. But I would argue that they're not. I don't think that it's an invitation for John, come and see. 
I think it better fits that it's calling the horses to come. Come, come, come. And the reason I believe that that fits in better is because it reaffirms who is really in control of all that's happening. These living beasts are at the altar, and they are, by the direction of the sovereign God, calling out the horsemen to come. And if they don't, they don't come. Can I argue that? Not only do they not come, they can't come. And it reminds me that this entire chapter is under the sovereign hand of God. And we're going to look at the description of these souls in just a moment. But first, let's simply settle on the fact that they are souls. They are underneath the altar. Now, there are some who think that there are two different altars in the book of Revelation. I will just tell you that. Some think that there is an altar of sacrifice and an altar of uh, prayer. I am of the persuasion that there's really only one altar, and this is it here. This is the altar that is, is one of incense, one of prayer and communion. I, I tend to see that because I like the old guys. Matthew Henry says, yeah, that's what it is. And I'm, you know, Matthew Henry is one of those guys that I kind of pay attention to. It seems to fit for me for a couple of reasons. First, the altar of sacrifice was the cross to me. And here is an altar that is one where the souls are under and not on. You can choose to differ with me, and that's perfectly all right. It doesn't hurt me, and what we really want to look at is these that are under the altar. And the reference to under signifies a privilege, a safekeeping of covering, of security, not one of hiding, not one of fear, not one like our cat who might run and, and try to protect itself by getting under something, nor is it a place of inactivity. We're going to see there's activity taking place. In this altar of prayer, altar of incense, and the reason I call it an altar of prayer is that's what we have prayer described as, as a sweet aroma unto God. The souls here are reaching out to Almighty God. Prayer is that pleasing aroma. And if I might say it, and these are recorded, so you can go back and double-check me. A prayerless Christian life stinks. In fact, could it be called a Christian life at all? And a prayerless church stinks collectively. Um, all right, commercial time. Time for commercial. Linda and I have been part of Tower View now for a year and three quarters. One of the first things that we wanted to become very active in was prayer meeting, being here for prayer meeting. Some of you might say, well, I don't need to come to a prayer meeting. I can pray at home. It's not an either-or situation to me. It's a both-and. What a wonderful time to lift your church up, to lift the body of Christ up, and join together in prayer. 
That's my commercial. I can do it. I'm not the pastor. I can do it. So here is these under the altar. Next slide, Amy. These are conscious souls. They are aware. They speak. The essence of being creatures are still part of them. Last week, Darren pointed out that two of the characteristics of mankind being created in God's image are relationship and rationality. Both are on display here. Relationship and rationality. These aren't dogs. These aren't cats. These aren't other created beings. These are souls of mankind. The fact that the term souls is used ought to heighten my awareness of how valuable our soul really is. You know, we in America spend more time, more money, more energy on the body than we do on the soul. I uh, looked some stuff up and I told Linda I wasn't going to use it. So I'm going to tell you that I'm not going to use it. But you ought to just do an exploration of how much money we spend on the body in America. It's astounding. We love mirrors. What do they do before there were selfies? Stand here while I draw a picture of myself. I don't know what you did. (laughs) Clothing. Self-care products. You know, you walk into the store, there's like two rows, three rows of self-care products. Diets. Exercise plans. Home gym equipment. Nothing wrong with these things. Please don't misunderstand me. But I wonder about the balance of treating one's body versus the care of one's soul. We treat our bodies as eternal and our souls as temporal. This ought to give you a picture of what's eternal and what's temporal. I am recently been studying three different books on the book of Job, trying to get three different perspectives as I work through the book of Job. Um, And especially when God gives permission to Satan, he lets him touch Job's body. He lets him do that. And one one of the commentators made a very interesting point. He said, the body is the outer court. If you remember your Old Testament, the soul is the inner court. What was in the inner court? Holy of holies. And God gave Satan permission, you can mess with the outer court. Inner court's mine. Inner court is mine. How are you treating your soul today? Did you prepare to come to church this morning? Did you prepare physically more than you did spiritually? So the word soul arrests me. Next slide, Amy, please. These are souls that have been slain. They are not slain souls because otherwise they would not have an existence. These are souls who had been slain. Well, that brings a host of questions, doesn't it? Uh When were they slain? How were they slain? 
Uh, how many were slain? Here, and I don't forgot the number you just quoted me just a moment ago. Is this a special set-aside group of believers and the rest of believers are over here? And this group is over here? Does that eliminate people like the Apostle John? Who seemed to die a natural death, the only one that did? Well, you say, well, it eliminates John because John's writing this. Okay, I'll grant you that. Are these visible martyrs who died while they were taking a stand for Christ visibly in front of people? Or does it include also that obscure, invisible martyr who died without the fanfare of the world? All of a sudden, the questions start to come. And it's interesting to me that if you were ever to talk to a magician... A magician tells you that the secret of magic is that if you're going to do something with this hand, you make very visible signs with this hand. They say, if you're going to do something with your hands, what you make sure is that you do a lot of banter. You distract from the main point. And so I want to argue that sometimes when we get to the book of Revelation, The magician's trick is being done with our minds. We go here and we go here and we go here and Satan just rejoices because we're not here. So let's take a look at these souls. Next slide, please. These are the slain souls that are described. They were slain. I believe the natural way to read the fact that they were slain is that they had experienced a physical death that was violent. I mean, the word slain certainly presses that on my mind. Throughout history and today, and Darren has given you many things already to think about, there have been many who have suffered physical pain and death for the gospel. We lose sight of this in comfy America. We may think we're being persecuted in America, but when we have a church event, Darren might take some pictures, you might take some pictures, we post them on Facebook and say, look at the crowd we had for this and the crowd we had for this. Try that in China. In China, it could be a life-threatening picture identifying you in the place of worship. So the natural way in here, I I think, really is these were those that were persecuted and died for that. But I would like to suggest another thing for your consideration because I think it's important for where you and I are. Next slide, please. There's a real sense that every true Believer in Jesus Christ is experiencing an identity death. Let me give you some scriptures. Romans 12.1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. One of the first scriptures I memorized as a Christian, was Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. By pointing this out, I'm not trying to diminish the reality of those who have suffered and died physically, 
what I'm trying to do is point out how lightly, in many ways, we have made the gospel. God may not call you to be a physical martyr for the gospel in the sense that we often think of martyr. But in a very real sense, you've been called to die to yourself. You've been called to die to this world. It is no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. If you are a believer, you've been bought. You've been baptized into his death in order that you may live a new life in him. And part of the issue that we face in our current cultural setting is not that the lost world is confused about gender issues or marital issues or integrity issues or even eternal issues. I would argue that the greater problem is that those professing Christians are confused because they have said, it's not me dying to self, it's Christ building me up. So I would argue that literally this passage to me speaks of those that have died physically for their faith. But the challenge spiritually, have I died to the world? Have I really, as John in our Sunday school class this morning, have I repented? Have I turned? Have I turned? Next slide, please. They're slain because of the word of God. Now, I have another question. Don't you? Were they slain because of their belief in the word of God? Were they slain because of their obedience to the word of God? Or possibly were they slain because of the decree of the word of God? And the answer is, thank you, Nelson. <laughs> but before Nelson ever learned the answer to that, there were others who learned the answer. The answer is, yes. Had they embraced the word of God? Well, I think it's very logical they would not be under the altar if they had not embraced the word of God. There's no place in heaven, there's no place under the altar for those who have not received the word of God. I have news for you. Surprise. Heaven is very exclusive and very inclusive. All nations, all tribes, all peoples, all social standings, all languages, yet only those who have embraced Christ. Were they faithful to the word of God? Well, you read throughout this text, when you take a look at the text, that they have maintained. We find that in verse 9, a word that carries the weight of endurance, allegiance, obedience. It's not simply a mental word, one of agreement. The old dead men used to say that belief involved three things, knowledge, assent, trust. You not only know, you agree, and you trust. Matthew 24 says, Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow old, but he who endures to the end will be saved. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, which is a good book to read, you will find that in the journey to the celestial city, that as Christian comes to the celestial city, he notices that at the entrance of the celestial city, there's a way to hell. Endure to the end. 
There's also a third one. Next slide. It's because of the Word of God and because of the testimony. You might initially think this is because of their testimony, but it doesn't read that way. King James says, because of the testimony which they held. English says, for the witness they had borne. It is not multiple and varied testimonies. It is the testimony. The testimony. At the risk of bending the page too far, it's not about your story. It's about his story. I have put some scriptures up there for you. I would urge you, take time to read them. Let me just mention them to you. 1 John 5, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. The one who believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. John chapter 3 tells you something very similar. Or if you go to the Old Testament, you find out that the ark is called the ark of the testimony. Or to show you how foolish I can be, when we went into the pandemic and I was pastoring, we were doing some video roundtables. Our staff got together and we discussed scripture on roundtables and we sent those videos out. And one of my questions of my fellow staff members is, what will you be doing during the pandemic? And they told me things and I said, well, I want to memorize the book of Romans. Stupid. The book of Romans? Come on. But I started off to memorize the book of Romans. I made it most of the way through the first chapter. And I can remember telling our associate, I said, what a joke that was for me to say something like that, except I know the introduction to the book of Romans like you wouldn't believe. And the introduction to the book of Romans says something very interesting. I'm not going to trust my memory. I'm going to read it to you. <laughs> Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. That is the testimony. These were slain because of the word of God and the testimony. Some of you are beginning to wonder if I really am going to preach until the next Chiefs game, aren't you? <clears throat> next slide, please. <clears throat> this is their cry unto the Lord. One question. You look at the text, it's just one question. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We've already pointed out that who this question is addressed to, 
This is not a random question to anybody, but it's to, O Lord, true and holy. The only one who is true and holy, the Lord himself. It is not a question to explain all the language and the images. It's not a question as to why this is all happening, or in particular, why were we the ones that were slain? Why me and not him? This is not a question of what are we going to do next? It is in kind of a way, what are you going to do, Lord? But in a very general sense. And the question is, how long? Anybody who's had children in a car on a long car trip know this question. (laughs) But a child in a car asks the question from a very self-oriented perspective. Or if you're ever stuck in traffic, you want to know, how long? That's a very self-oriented question. Or if you're waiting on on hold on the phone, it's a self-oriented question. I would argue that this is not self-oriented. I would argue this is God-oriented. There is a desire for the souls under the altar to see the full display of the glory of God. A glory that will execute righteous judgment on the fallen world. And to deal with the three previous seals in particular. Next slide, please. How long will you refrain? I have four things up there that I think are implied by this question. First of all, God's sovereignty. You only ask someone how long they will refrain if they have the ability to refrain. You don't ask it for somebody who doesn't have the ability. Remember the first four seals started with the word come? And I said to you that I think that it applies to the horses. The events of verses 1 through 8 do not happen outside the sovereignty of God. God, you can say come, and you can say stay, and both will happen as you say. I think it speaks of his righteousness, his judgment, his judging. This is not a judge where there's going to be an appeal to a higher court. This is the higher court. This is not a judge where you're going to be able to stand and plead your case because the evidence against you is overwhelming. It's not going to be a judge that's going to be swayed by social media and likes. He is the judge. And there is an avenging that takes place. I have these a little bit backwards, maybe, his righteousness and his judging. There is a submission. Vengeance belongs to the Lord and not to the slain ones. You may note that they use the word our blood. That is not a statement that says that the shedding of blood earned them a position before God and God is recognizing their sacrifice. Rather, it's an indication that they are so united with Christ that the shedding of their blood is proof of the covenant relationship that they have. You don't enter heaven because you're a martyr. There are many martyrs going to hell who died for wrong causes. You enter heaven because someone else died for you 
and you have identified with that, and you are united with him in a covenant relationship. I also think it speaks of eternal security. Because he tells them, and he's going to speak of this, until this is complete. I'll say this, and I can say it because I'm not the pastor, and you can go ahead and get mad at me. No one whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world, whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life before you were ever born, and it's all been done according to his good pleasure, will be left behind. It's secure. And it's very personal in all of that. There used to be an old gospel song. There's a new name written down in glory. Yes, it's mine. Yes, it's mine. That's not theologically accurate. That name was written down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. All you're experiencing is the reality of it being carried out. Well, finally, we're going to get to the fourth point so you can get home and eat lunch, right? The comfort. Next slide. Here is the comfort that he gives. Verse 11, And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer, while the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. I would argue that the Lord does not answer their question. I would argue that what he does is affirm himself. The Lord does say a little while longer, which is kind of an answer, kind of an answer like a parent to a child. But the real information here is about himself. His righteousness will be carried out. His sovereignty, he has not ceased to reign. His identity is with his redeemed. They will be secure forever. And God reigns. And the sun shines. I find these verses exceedingly comfort that his purpose in his time and in his way will be accomplished. And my eschatology is really simple. The more I understand the reason he first came, the greater comfort I have in the second, no matter what takes place. I'm not trusting the plan. I'm trusting the architect. That's what I want. I always like to ask questions at the end of my messages. You have some on your sheet, but let me ask you four right now. 
First slide, next slide. Is Christ preeminent in your study of Revelation? If he isn't, you really need to examine your heart. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the satisfaction of your curiosity. Is he preeminent? In fact, I would argue, is he preeminent in any study of Scripture? Next question. What's the priority level? Your body or your soul? Lord, heal my body. The older I get, I understand that prayer more. But Lord, work in my soul. Work in my soul. For this perishable does not take on the imperishable. This mortal must give way to immortality. Let me treat what is eternal eternally and what is temporal temporally. That is not an excuse to give up on caring for your body. Next question. Do I rest in his purpose? Did you notice that word? In his answer to those that were under the altar? Rest. Rest. Okay, I'll get myself in more trouble. I, I, I wring my hands sometimes at the people who say, have you read the headlines today? Uh. Rest. Trust the architect. The last one is this. Next question. Am I praying for him to usher in his kingdom? When I was a young Christian, I had a good friend. He has since gone on to be with the Lord. But he used to say, I want the Lord to return and his kingdom to be established. But before that, I want to do this, 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 and this. And then we would laugh a little bit because it really revealed what we thought of the kingdom. And it was not a good thought. By the way, we've only spent the last four years, and I've only been here two of them, on thy kingdom come on Wednesday night. Is that right, Darren? Praying for thy kingdom to come. Well, that's my take on this portion of Revelation 6. What does it teach you about God? What does it teach you about you? How should you respond? Will you pray with me, please? Father, what a glorious passage this is. Father, when I think of those who have died because of the word of God and the testimony I cannot help but think of Corey Tinboom's question to her father when she asked, how will I know if I have dying faith? And that wise man said, 
you don't know whether you have dying faith until you're in a dying situation. Yet, Father, I would argue that I need to know that I have died to the world now if I will ever stand and die for the truth of the gospel. Thank you, Father, that you are the one who reigns and that the sun does shine and that your kingdom is eternal, inclusive, yet at the same time, exclusive. Thank you that, Father, by putting faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we have a citizenship in your kingdom. I pray this and ask it in Christ's name. Amen.